Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. On this week's edition, we'll be looking at what has happened in the Libertadores over the last week or so, and also briefly round up the action in the Sudamericana. To help me summarise all this, it's two familiar voices to regular listeners of this show. First up, Austin Miller in hot and sunny Buenos Aires. How are you, Austin? I'm doing well, Adam. Not as hot as it should be in December, and for that, we are grateful. It's, it's almost like fall is still around here, so some nice weather for the weekend. Oh, it's quite enjoyable. It's very, very hot here in Santiago, so I just assumed it would be over there as well, because it's usually even hotter. We've got a, we've got a good weekend. I th- the heat's coming, surely, but we're enjoying it yeah. while, while, while we can. But I'm doing well. And a good week. Good week for you. Wins for Stoke and Palmeiras. Indeed, indeed. Stoke going away to the the vaunted Wickham Wanderers. Um, Palmeiras continuing to cruise. We'll see what happens when they play a real team. But yeah, yeah, no, we're doing well. And and Adam, before before I I pass it over, yeah. Excursionistas Femenina only four nil losers to Boca Juniors at the weekend. Which, considering the last time those two teams met, it was 16-0. Big, big strides for excursionistas this weekend. So, yeah, great week all around. Well done to them. And uh, second of all, Tom Robinson in cold and snowy Norwich. How are you, Tom? <laughs> yeah, not at all jealous of, uh, of the nice weather that you guys are experiencing. I'm, I'm wrapped up warm here, but at least things are, are heating up in the Libertadores and Sudamericana in these knockout rounds. So that's, that's given me something to kind of vicariously live through. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm living the high life by recording a podcast in a dark and dingy room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure um, there's much to be jealous of, to be honest. Anyway, um, well, first up, I think we need to look at the biggest story of um, the last 16 of the Libertadores this week, and that was Holders Flamengo going out on penalties to Racing. It looked like the Brazilians had saved themselves with an injury time equaliser, but it was the Argentines with, with the help of a Chilean international goalkeeper that held their nerve for better in the shootout. Who wants to go first on this? Yeah, as you said, Adam, the storyline of the week and, and of the round here, um, Flamengo, obviously not the same team that lifted the Libertadores, although many of the faces are the same. The manager, perhaps most crucially, is not. Already, we're at the second manager of the, the post-Jorge Jesus era. That was Rogerio Ceni, who has had plenty of success at Fortaleza, but so far has struggled to find success managerially outside that club in Brazil, struggling at Sao Paulo, struggling at Cruzeiro, and now not making the best of starts at Flamengo. Um, the second leg, uh, I think Rossing spent a lot of the second leg hanging on. They took the chance that they got and then obviously hung on from there. In the first leg, though, I, I thought Rossing played some good stuff. I thought BKSSA's side probably deserved to win the first leg and, and ended up having that leg finish 1-1. Um, they had a, a couple of chances laid on, a couple of goals chopped off by the VAR. So for that to have finished 1-1 with, with Gabriel Barbosa getting the goal for Flamengo, um, that could have been better for Rossing. And I think on Wednesday night, the second leg could have been better for Flamengo. Um, they were the better side. They dominated the game for the majority of the first half. Unlucky not to score. I think Gabriel Barbosa not being fit for the second leg certainly played a big, big role in Flamengo going out. Um, a red card or a second yellow to Rodrigo Kyle for Flamengo gave Rossing a free kick, and that was the chance they needed. 
Uh, Sigali initially in an offside position, but then played onside after the ball deflected off of a Flamengo defender, stuck it in the back of the net for Rossing's goal. And it looked as though they were going to give it away. As you said, Adam, the injury time equalizer, William around rising high on a corner kick after some, some good time wasting shenanigans from Rossing to force penalties for Flamengo. But then unluckily it was around himself who was the only Flamengo player to miss his penalty, not hit well, hit right at Arias and Arias able to make the save. And Tom Rossing deserved credit um, for, I think, what they did in this tie. They weren't the better side over 180 minutes, but they got through. And they got through in large part because, as Adam said, they held their nerve in penalties. I thought all four penalties from Rossing were really strong. And at the end of the day, that was the difference over what was a fairly tight tie over 180 minutes. Yeah, there wasn't a lot to separate these two teams. I think Racing, certainly in that first leg, as, as you rightly said, they they really pressured Flamengo well. And it all kind of adds to, to that growing feeling of maybe Flamengo being not quite as used to, to sides that really get stuck at them in, in the way that maybe in the Brazilian league, they're used to having a little bit of an easier ride in terms of uh, the teams they come up at and the styles of football they come up against. So the fact that Becca Sese's team worked really hard, obviously Adias really kept Rassing in that game. Um, I think on one hand, you can look at Flamengo choosing Vitinho over someone like Pedro, who for me would have been a more obvious striker to, to trouble um, Rassing. But Arias was was really fantastic. There was um, good saves in the first half and, and then a, and a really good one to keep out Bruno Enrique in, in late on and and a, another header from a corner. So obviously he'll get the plaudits for the for the penalty shootout as well. But throughout that game he was he was brilliant. And yeah, all around I thought that Rassing showed a lot of personality. Um they're used they're a side that's usually used to dominating the ball. So the fact they didn't have as much of it as usual um speaks a lot for their their mentality and and the organization in the team. And and as you said, really good penalties. Uh one um, that I think really sums up their performance. And a player that I wanted to mention was Carlos Alcaraz. He he was having a great week. He'd only just turned 18, I think, the day before. And he scored, his, uh, he scored a really nice goal in the league uh, against Union for, to, to win that game. So he stepped up. I think it was the fourth penalty for Racing with a with a smile on his face. We, we were debating whether it was a, it was a smile that was trying to hide his nerves or whether he was genuinely that confident. But um, yeah, he, he put the penalty away and he's he's looking like a really good prospect for Racing, um, stepping into the role that, that Zaracho's left and and looks to be yet another good player off the um, off the Racing production line. But yeah, it was um, Arias the hero. And um, Adam, do you think he's someone who should be... Um, be maybe pushing for for more minutes for the Chilean national team. Well, I, I think he I think he should probably be the number two um, for Chile. I, I think Bravo would be everybody's choice here um, for the number one spot. But yeah, I think I think he's decent enough backup. But um, he didn't have a great game in the semi-finals of the Copa America last year. He, he had some decent moments too in in that competition. So you know, it wasn't wasn't all bad um and yeah I, I was um i kind of expect him to perhaps be in in the squad ne- next year but we we'll have to wait and see because chile's manager might have changed by then and talking of change of mar- managers obviously flamengo changed their manager since the group stage 
for this one. But I think it's a, uh, with uh, Rogerio Seni now in charge of, of Flamengo. And it doesn't look like the change has particularly worked. But I think it's interesting to note, and um, and you touched on it there, Tom, and it's something we've mentioned before on this podcast, is Flamengo, you know, they did struggle against non, non-Brazilian non sides in, in last year's competition. I think they needed a penalty shootout to beat Emelec, didn't yep. they, at, at this same stage last year? So if, if you need a penalty shootout one year to, to get through, there's always a chance that, you know, the following year it might not quite go your way. So... Yeah, I think um, I think Flamengo will probably be back in the in the Libertadores uh, next year, looking at how the Brazilian league shaping up. But um, I see this year's uh, exit as a as a quite a big missed opportunity. But a couple of things, Adam, as we as we say goodbye to to Flamengo in the twenty twenty Libertadores. Um, one, I think the the performances of Flamengo, as I said, post Jorge Jesus, first under Tarant and then and now under Rogério Ceni, really highlight just how good of a job Jorge Jesus did. Um, I don't know if it was last week or, or this week when the the nominations for the best manager of the year, the FIFA award, came out. It was a disappointment to not see Jorge Jesus on that list. Um, just how good his Flamengo side were last year, um, I think. When we look back across across multiple yes. competitions yeah, they, as well, I think that's the yep. key thing, and that's why he really deserved the. Nomination. They were untouchable in the Brazilian league, and they were the best side in the Libertadores last year. I don't think there's there's much of a doubt in that, and so I think we will look back on the 2019 Flamengo and and what he did, and I think it will only grow as as time goes on, kind of. And secondly, I, I did want to give a mention to Bruno Enrique. Um, he created the goal in the first leg um, with a, a great bit of play down the wing. I think for my money, he's the best player in South America right now. He's really talented. He's really, really good. And he covers up a lot of the deficiencies that Flamengo or the lack of production maybe that they're getting at other positions. He's a really good player. Uh, he was the best. He was you know, given the honor of best player in the Libertadores last year. And had Flamengo continued to advance, I think his, his name would have been in the conversation for that honor again this year. What's really interesting about Bruno Enrique as well is he sort of only he only made his Serie A debut at 24 years old, I think. He's a bit of a, uh, a late bloomer. And, and certainly in that first leg, the assist for the first goal was absolutely brilliant. And he almost scored an absolute golasso where he kind of curled a ball from the edge of the area and hit the crossbar. And, and I definitely agree with, with Austin there on... Um, the fact that he's probably the best player in, in South America now. Um, and quickly on Racing, I'd say, given that uh, they've beaten the reigning champions, the last two teams that have done that have gone on to win the tournament. So who knows, Racing fans, you, you might be in luck this year. I've, I think here, huge credit to Sebastian uh, Pekasechi, um as well. I think you did touch on it, Tom, but this was a really big win for his growing reputation known as Becca Sexy in uh, in a lot of football Twitter and uh, an Argentinian football memes. Um, and he fell to the Maracanar turf in delight at the end. And do you think his tight trousers survived this, Tom? Oh. It's my big question to you. That is uh, that is one that I'm probably not best placed uh, to to answer, but um, yeah, certainly his his sartorial elegance um, was was put under pressure there with that that reaction. Really heartfelt. Um, emotional reaction because definitely, as you said, one of one of the big 
nights in his his managerial career and and I think it's interesting to note as well that Racing obviously they haven't been focusing on the on the Copa Mar- uh, Diego Maradona but they've they've been having quite a bad spell of domestic form so the fact that they were able to pull out this huge huge result really kind of took maybe a little bit of pressure not that I think Racing fans were calling for his head but certainly it's turned the the tide in the, in the last month or so and obviously they're they're going to have a, a tough game whoever they face in the next next round but um on their day they are you know that they are capable of of going toe to toe with anyone there's still i think um a bit of a worry about where the goals are going to come from they've got quite a an elderly front line um but there is some good youth coming through and and i think because they've got such a defined style um, and sort of certainly try to play quite a modern, high-pressing, possession-based football. Um, then, then there's a lot to like about them, and and a lot to admire about uh, Becker Sese's football as well as his trousers. Elderly makes it sound like they're queuing up for their bus pass for their bus pass. Well, Lita Lopez is, isn't far <laughs> off. <laughs> I think they they might prefer the term experienced. But um, <laughs> yeah, I. Um, Racing will now face the winner of International and um, Boca. Um, that tie is one week behind the rest due to the death of Diego Maradona. And it was decided last week due to his passing that it was best to suspend that game for, for one week. But what happened in the, in the first leg of this on Thursday night, Austin? It was a very Boca Juniors performance, I think it, it's fair to say. Um, not ex- you know look this this Boca side is not going to be the side that's you know going to play with the flair and the passion and and pass your way around and through and over the the opposition scoring goals left and right um they're going to dig in they're going to grind they're a good matchup for this Internacional side because i think Inter do a, a lot of that as well um dating back to you know when they were under Chaco Cudet, and now under what eventually will be Abel Braga once once he gets his health back. Um, a 1-0 win for Boca Juniors, Carlos Tevez with the goal, with a, a, a great um, celebration for him, uh, a la what we saw from Messi at the weekend, um, revealing a, an old Boca shirt that, that Maradona himself had given Tevez. Um, this kind of felt like it was a result that was destined to happen, and Tevez being the one to score for, for Boca only kind of emphasizes that. I think they'll have what it takes to get through in the second leg. Um, Inter, it, it's been interesting because Thiago Gachardo has, has scored a ton domestically for them. But he just hasn't gotten going in the Libertadores. And without his goal-scoring presence and obviously with, with Paulo Guerrero, who's, who's been injured... Um, they just haven't had the the finishing that they've needed in in the Libertadores, and that I think is is what's could be their undoing as this tie reaches the second leg at La Bombonera next week. But they're also they're also another team who have seen a change yeah. of manager, haven't they? Since since the group and there. one that was for once not the fault of the club. This was Cudet, you know, looking for a way out, and and he found his way out and heading over to Spain. So you you feel for them a little bit with that. Um, but Tom, this Boca side, I don't know. They are, I guess, what we've kind of seen from Boca over the past few years. As I said, never going to be overly impressive, but always seem to kind of get it done one way or the other. 
Yeah, I think Rousseau really gets the kind of identity of the club and they've been very successful with it. Obviously, a, a bit more attacking than the, when they were under Alfaro, but maybe more pragmatic than the times uh, with Barajicoloto before that and Arroyo Barena. So, yeah, you kind of know that they're going to be solid in defence um, and rely on that individual quality in, in the final third. Um, I think one big thing to, to mention about this game as well is that there was a lot of rainfall before the match as well. So, you know, certainly on some of the flanks in the first half, it was almost unplayable. It was really hard to to know how the ball was going to react, if it was going to hold up in the rain or if it's going to skid off it. So I think that definitely led to a, a more low scoring uh, game as well that couldn't quite get in the flow. A lot of Boca's attacks were sort of channeled through Sebastian Vija, who had uh, like the right back absolutely on toast. He just couldn't deal with his pace at all. Um, but his la- end product was just so severely lacking that, that he kind of... Sc- squandered all his good opportunities there and and Moledo was just about doing enough to keep Boca at bay and in the end I think it was a slight defensive mishap that led to the goal Salvio combining with Tevez and they've got such a good relationship Um, and I think Tevez has now got about four in his last five at the time of recording Uh, so the fact that Russo has been able to get the best out of Tevez he was obviously crucial in their in their league win at the tail end of last season and he's kind of got the Colombians playing well in Boca and that, that seems to be the way, the way they're doing it. So, yeah, they're not spectacular, but I think if now they've got that away goal and they've got the home game, you'd, you'd feel that they've got enough there to, to, to see themselves through to the next round and, and set up an all-Argentinian um, quarterfinal. OK, well, um, let's, go, let's go back to Tuesday night um, where last year's runners-up River got through against Atletico Paranaense, um, only by the one goal, and it was probably a bit tighter than many of us thought it would be. Isn't that right, Tom? Yeah, it was It was a game that you'd, on paper, think that River should have no problems with at all, and especially because not only uh, Atletico not got the resources and not got the history and, and the players that River do, they were also plagued by loads of players being out through COVID. So you kind of thought, okay, this should be make it even easier and be a fairly routine. I would still say that it was pretty routine for River, but they made hard work of it. And yes, they are through the, to the quarterfinals for a sixth year in a row now, which is a, a level of consistency that we rarely see in South America. And River do have a good record against um, Brazilian sides in, in the knockout stages. Um over the last few years, but they were they were really kept at bay by the um, the third choice keeper of, of Atletico Paranaense, twenty uh, one year old Bento. I think it was even his senior debut for them in the first leg, um, and he was yeah he he was he had a very good two games. Uh, I thought Thiago Heleno as well was was really really good in the first game, and Rivo were just good on the ball but I think they're at the moment they're struggling struggling for a bit of fluidity in the final third all all their kind of forwards seem to have dropped off the the pace a little bit and and haven't got their shooting boots on the moment at the moment so yeah it was um in the first game um it was it was quite quite close um to, to begin with river dominating but but not really taking their chances and then uh, Atletico Baranense took a 
took advantage of, a, of some really, really bad defending. There was so much space for uh, Bisoli to, to turn and, and get his shot away. Um, but then they had a man sent off, which was, I thought was quite harsh. And eventually River got the equaliser. I think they had about 13 or 14 corners. Yeah, um, set piece, I think yeah. is that's when this tie turned, Tom. I think had Atletico sawn out, seen out that 1-0, they would have been able to come to Avellaneda last on Tuesday and been able to defend for their lives and maybe get it done. But that was where that tie turned. It just felt like one corner too many for the River and they made it count. Yeah, and, and they'd certainly been knocking on the door. I think as soon as they got Alvarez on, he started delivering in some better balls. And there was um and also Carascal made a bigger big impact when he came on. In fact, in both the games I thought he was quite good. But they had, had a corner that hit the bar and then Carascal went on this mazy dribble that led to another corner. And then Paulo Diaz put in a thumping header that, that um, gave what was probably a deserved draw, but certainly one that River made, made hard work of. And then in the second game as well, I thought the, um, certainly it was uh, Rojas who, who and Pinola who were very solid at the back. Fullbacks, fullbacks were getting forward quite nicely. Um, and I think they had, again, sort of 70 percent um, possession really um but i think both sides it was almost like a weird dynamic at the start of the match where river thought that you know what we're probably going to do enough here to get through plus we've got the away goal while atletico were thinking well actually all we need to do is nick one and then river are going to need um to get um get another goal um so yeah it was in the end it was um nico de la cruz who had a penalty um very un well it was i don't know it kind of summed up the evening almost when the fact that he his penalty hit the post rebounded off the keeper hit the post again but then bounced out to him and, and sort of left him with a simple tap in so it was a case of yeah bento having an inspirational thing but at the end of the day just the the, the luck falling with river and, and then being able to just about do enough even though they were far from their best um but uh yeah they they crack on and and they get through and and certainly their excellent form in this competition um is always going to hold them in good stead and it sets up tom a very interesting quarterfinal tie now for river where marcelo gajardo will go up against the only other club he's ever managed in uruguay inside nacional but adam it certainly didn't look for the majority of the 180 minutes that it was going to be Nacional, who get through on penalties after 180 scoreless minutes and one controversial VAR decision over podcast favorites Independiente del Valle of Ecuador. Yeah, um, to say that I was disappointed with the outcome of this match would be somewhat of an understatement. <laughs> um <laughs> I, I did initially think that Independiente de Valle kind of blown their chance a little bit in the in the first leg, um, when I could understand how Nacional set up for that, you know, altitude and 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 just generally, you know, most teams do struggle against Independiente de Valle away, but I was surprised to see that Nacional basically had the exact same plan for the home leg as well, which meant that. Independiente de Valle had to do all the work in this game to make it even remotely watchable. Um, and it looked like that the Ecuadorians had finally made a breakthrough on 85 minutes. For me, 
it was a legitimate goal. Yes, there was a couple of players offside when the free kick is initially put into the box. But I think by the time it's put back into the box again, I think that has basically restarted um, the play. You know, it's basically into another phase by then. And, and I, I don't see the relevance of the, of the first offside of, of the first off cycle. So very frustrating for them. Very frustrating for anybody who wants to see sort of the best teams make it through to the, to the quarterfinals of this competition and, 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 the, and the most watchable teams. Because my word, you know, this was a national side who basically had very little to offer. Um, they played for penalties for 180 minutes and, yeah, but their keeper had the tie of his life. Um, and, yeah, they, they had trained and planned for the penalty scenario and, and, and executed the penalties superbly. That has to be, say, uh, has to be said. Um, they certainly looked well-practiced. Um, but, yeah, I, Tom, Independiente de Rey, without Moises Casado for both legs of this, for me... Um, <laughs> Even if he plays maybe just twenty minutes of this tie, um, even not fully fit, I think uh, they might have found a, a way um, a way through. Um, and I, I kind of I really feel sorry for Independiente Independiente de here because he got injured on international duty for for Ecuador, so it feels like they've almost been punished for developing a player. Who is uh, who's far better than any other player Ecuador have have produced um, in in recent years? Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's just really frustrating that we won't see this team anymore, and we won't see Casado anymore in in well, we won't see Independiente de Valle in this competition anymore this year. I'm sure they'll be back again, if not next year, the year after, because they're so well run. But I think this is probably the last time. You know the well the group stages were anyway the last time that we see Moises Casado in 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 this competition and and that's kind of a real disappointment because I think that seeing him in maybe a quarterfinals of this competition when he was expected to be back would um, would have been a real spectacle. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of those situations where someone's absence actually enhances their reputation even more because it, it was definitely a case of no Moises, no party. Um, it's And it's a good point you raised there about the fact that he, he won't, we won't be able to see him in the knockout stages because he, his performances this year have really deserved it. And I think he would have given them a little bit more directness and cutting edge in the final third. Obviously, we've talked a lot about his, you know, the defensive qualities of his game. He wouldn't have really needed to deploy any of those against this Nacional side, but he's he's shown this year in a more advanced midfield role, be that for the, the national team or or Independiente del Valle, but he can really contribute and and I think he would have yeah, just given them that extra extra element that could have seen them through. Like drive. Yeah, and, exactly. Yeah, and he's very good at either breaking the lines with a pass or just driving through the lines with a piece of skill or, or a pass. Yeah, because... That's the that's the beauty of him, really. Exactly, yeah, because there was so, so much sort of sideways passing and, you know, I, I definitely agree that particularly the second leg um, was was quite underwhelming and disappointing from Nacional because I think this is a Nacional, Nacional side that is 
capable of doing more than previous na- national sides we've seen in the past. I think, as you rightly mentioned um, on on the WhatsApp group, the change of manager I think has been key to their you know dour approach in in this game. I could 100% see why you'd at altitude against such a good uh, team you would you know sit deep and and defend and, and try and get out of that. Um, tie and, and then maybe do something at the home leg but the fact that they did just defend and they let's give them credit they defended very well um for most of it obviously that you know that that var call was the really really unfortunate and independent del, del valle deserved that goal um which was which was wrongly ruled out but um yeah still a lot of credit for a for a, a t- uh, side that's really tough to break down especially when you considered how young their side is as well. Um, La Boda and Orihuela in in the centre of defence. I think one's twenty, the other's eighteen, or roundabouts there. They they were both fantastic. I thought they were brilliant. You know, you've got players like Teresa and Trasante, and then other other players on on the bench as well. I think the fact that we we didn't see the likes of Ocampo or Rodriguez or Vecino come on just really indicated that they were just going to go for that draw against the team that they clearly identified as better than them. You'd like to think that they might come out a bit more against River, but I'm not holding my holding my breath with, um, under the new manager, Giordano. Um, but yeah, I, I thought when presented with such a low block with two lines of uh, four, um, someone like Caicedo would have just given them that that edge in terms of breaking breaking through that potentially. Um, you know, on one hand, you could say Independiente del Valle should have taken their chances, but at the same time, you know, you'd feel like they'd done enough. And um, it was um, it was interesting in the penalties as well that um, the guy who scored the the winner, Emiliano Martin, Martinez, um, he's twenty one. He's had about ten games um, for Nacional. Apparently, he's never taken a um, a competitive penalty in his career, either in the youth uh, ranks or, or in the senior team. So quite a uh, quite impressive. And I think one last thing on Nacional as well, as much as we've talked about their negative approach and, and how unattractive that is maybe on the eye, I think it's worth noting that they didn't necessarily shithouse their way through it. I think they only got their first and only yellow card of, this, of the second leg there in the 85th minute. Um, so unambitious, um, yes, but I think defensively excellent. And, and Rochette, the keeper, I think you've got to be looking at him getting in the national team. He's been brilliant for a long time now for Nacional. Austin, you think that Nacional deserved it? I mean, who won the tie? Uh, right? Um, no, I mean, look, it was not pretty on the eye. And Nacional are not going to be able to do this again, probably. But, you know, they went through. And yeah, it's a loss for the competition. But I think um, this is just another step in Independiente del Valle kind of becoming the big club that they will become. Because you can't be a big South American club if you don't have you know completely unexplainable knockout tie losses to a vastly inferior team in the Libertadores. And they've added that one. You know, they've beaten all the Giants, and now they've gone out to an Nacional side that didn't play football for 180 minutes. So you're getting there, IDV. You're getting there. Well, yeah, the way, the way Nationale celebrated this victory looked like they had actually won the competition. And um, <laughs> and also, it was um, interesting to note that Palmeiras, 
who had made it through in a, in another tie, I think on the same night, it was on the same night, same time. wasn't it? Yep. And yeah, same time, but their social media team seemed more bothered about mocking Independiente de Val- exit from the competition rather than celebrating their own triumph, which um, which I found interesting. And it's perhaps another sign of um, Independiente de Valle's sort of growing reputation on the continent and how they've managed to rattle some of the bigger boys in South America. Well, yeah, the obvious link between those two clubs is back in, I believe it was October, when Palmeiras moved on from Vanderlei Luxemburgo. Their top target was Miguel Angel Ramirez, the Independiente del Valle manager. Um, Palmeiras got far enough along in negotiations that they sent a team to Ecuador to meet with Ramirez to negotiate terms. Um, he pretty much said, you know, I don't want to leave IDV in the middle of the year. I don't want to, to join a new club in the middle of the year. You know, if you'll wait until January or until the end of the season, I'll take the job. Palmeiras wanted somebody who would come in and take the job now. Ramirez said, that's not me. So Palmeiras walked away empty handed and certainly a little hurt. IDV in turn poked fun at Palmeiras for that episode. And then Palmeiras, as you said, Adam, had a go at, at Independiente del Valle for, for going out of the competition. And in the end, I think it's worked out for both clubs. Ramirez is a perfect fit for what del Valle want to do. And Palmeiras seemed to have found their manager in Abel Ferreira, the, the Portuguese manager who has come in and has completely transformed this Palmeiras side um, without adding any sort of, of big names. They've gone from a, a dour, listless, passionless, kind of idealist side under Luxembourgo and are playing really good football, both domestically and internationally. Again, look, they beat a Delphine team that were lucky to have made the round of 16. They batted him 3-1 away in Manta and made it 5-0. Uh, but there's young players coming up through Palmeiras, Gabriel Menino, who we just did a scouting spotlight podcast on, Gabriel Verón, um, Rolny is, is playing really well for Palmeiras. He leads the Libertadores in assists with six. Look, the question for Palmeiras is the same question that we had last year. It's the same question that we had the year before. It's can they go all the way? Um, they've beaten Delphine in the round of 16. They will face a, a Libertad side in the round of 16 that they will certainly be favored over. You know, what will happen when and if they, they make the, the semifinals? Um, and face, you know, be it River Plate, uh, I guess it theoretically could be Nacional at this point. But if it's Palmeiras, River in the semifinals, what do Palmeiras do then? And, and we can't answer that question now. But Tom, so far the, the signs are good for Palmeiras, and, and I think they have to be considered among the favorites in this competition, at least looking at what they've done this year. Oh yeah, 100%. They've been really impressive. As you said, probably the biggest mismatch in terms of the golfing quality between the two sides. And perhaps we still don't know how good Palmeiras are because um, they've yet to be really tested. Um, but We might not know until the semis. <laughs> perhaps, yeah. Although, you know, they I think the only tie to take points off them um, in the... Um, in the group stage was were Guarani. So coming up against Paraguayan opposition might um, might cause a few issues. But I think you know you'd, you'd back them even when we saw the uh, the lineup and and the and the routes to the final. I think all of us had Palmeiras straight away penciled in as semi finalist at, at the bare minimum. But I really like this Palmeiras side now. Um, as Austin mentioned, 
lots of good kids coming through. Gabriel Veron was the standout in the second leg there. That second goal he scored was was beautiful. It was um, you know, he was sort of controlled volley with both, you know, both feet off off the ground. Really the first technique. wasn't bad either. Yeah, yeah, that was it was very, very nice. I mean, I don't know what Bangera was doing. Um for quite a few of the goals but um yeah it was a lovely little lift over the keeper for for his first one um but yeah he's he's great now i think it's eight goals and 10 starts for palmeiras now and for a, for an 18 year old he's he's looking in absolutely sensational form and and he was well supported by you know the, the cast of other good young players menino patrick de paolo with a lovely goal as well uh, danilo coming on and doing quite quite well gabriel silva getting amongst it as well so there's a lot to be a lot to be excited about going going forward for palmeiras and and i wanted to echo your sentiments about uh, roni as well he for me i think has been underrated for for quite some time he, he was always one that caught my eye for atletico paranaense and i mean do you think he's someone who could who could potentially be one of the best players in, in South America in the same way that Bruno Henrique's sort of shown? Do you think he's that level or do you think he's someone who's, who's maybe just going to always just be a decent player in Brazil? Yeah, I think before this year, my, my answer to your question would have been probably not. But as you said, he's been really good, this Libertadores. And okay, sure, there's a question of opposition, but everybody gets to play less than stellar teams in the Libertadores. That's how the competition works. Um, for him to do what he's done so far this year, uh, he was the bright spot in the Luxembourgo era, really, for Palmeiras. And now um, to be playing this this expansive, really good-looking football, yeah, I, I think he's absolutely somebody that, that could be in that conversation. And you mentioned all of those names, Tom, and the thing that I think makes Palmeiras so dangerous is now they have the ability to... What they were under Luxembourg is they could defend. And so they have all of that still in their DNA. They've got Gustavo Gomez. They have Matias Vina. Those are two of the best defenders playing in South America right now. They have a goalkeeper in Weberton who started World Cup qualifiers for Brazil. They have the defensive spine and the defensive back line that can allow them to be expansive going forward. Um, there's a lot to like with this team, and, and and Roni is one reason, and and Gabriel Menino and Verone and and Patrick De Paula. There's just a lot of really good players, and and they seem to have found a manager who has bought in quickly with Palmeiras, and who is doing what he can to get the best out of this squad. So I think the the sky is the limit, and this time I think we actually mean it for Palmeiras this year. Yeah, and as mentioned, their face Libertad, um, baby. Jorge Wilsterman. Um, it looks like a comfortable win when you see the result, Austin, but the Bolivians missed a lot of chances, didn't they? Yeah, so this uh, Libertad deserved to go through in this tie, uh, but it could have been a lot different, I, I think it's fair to say. Um, as we said when we were breaking down the draw, this was the tie of opportunity. Um, you're not going to fool yourself into thinking that either Libertad or Jorge Wilsterman um, were either of the the best eight sides in South America, but this was, you know, the tie that was handed to them, and it was a big opportunity, and it was Libertad who took advantage of it. Um, in the first leg, you know, a two, it was very nearly a two-one loss for Jorge Wilsterman away in Asuncion. They did what they needed to do. They scored the away goal in the form of um, the wonderfully named Umberto Osorio uh, after Libertad scored 
straight off the the second half kickoff to to go one nil up, and then Oscar Cardoso, who was having himself a really nice Libertadores, uh, scored to make it two nil. Wilstermann got one back, but they couldn't see out that two one result. And Adrian Martinez scored in second half stoppage time after Wilstermann had gone down to ten men to make it three one. That was the bit of breathing room I think Libertad needed. But still, this second leg was was by no means straightforward. Wilstermann, um, they did a ton in the first half, and they created chance after chance. Um, and as we see so many times in Libertadores, they were let down by their lack of quality, and there's a reason why they are the club that they are. Um, it's so many good opportunities that they just didn't take advantage of, and this tie could have been so much different had they had a high-quality finisher that could have even gotten them just one goal to, to drag them back in this tie. They only needed to win 2-0 to go through. Um, they didn't do that. Oscar Cardoso ended up scoring twice for Libertad, and it's, a, I think, a, a, a flattering 5-1 result for Libertad at the end of the day. Um, but they're through to the quarterfinals. And, and Tom, this is an interesting little Libertad side. Um, they're not going to be favored against Palmeiras. But there's enough there to... You can talk yourself into them troubling the Brazilian side, can't you? Yeah, I think if they if they play like they have in these two ties, then they've got enough there to be solid and with enough individual quality to, to potentially threaten. They obviously got off to the group stage in, in great form. And we thought, okay, you know, this could be a side to watch out for. And then they really tailed off towards the end of the group stage and only just got through. Um, so I think that kind of cooled the expectations on them somewhat. But, you know, as you mentioned, Oscar Cardozo, he, he might be experienced um i've learned obviously from my earlier <laughs> descriptions of the the slightly older strikers um there's a thin line still... tom there's a thin line between experienced and old and he walks it right <laughs> exactly oh and I'm, I'm, i don't want to get on you know on his bad side at all because he's still you know an absolute specimen and, and a big unit up front who can who's still got that quality i think he's He's someone at this level who's he's still great, and and I think with the two goals that he scored in that second game, he's actually equal, uh, equaled Arsenio Erico's um, record of, of pa- official senior goals for in 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 South South American or Paraguayan strikers rather. So three hundred and forty eight goals in his career, so that puts him you know right up there as one of Paraguay's best ever strikers, and and he was you know showing showing he could still do the business. He he you know he only came on. I think roughly about 55 minutes in and then scored two. And, and I think that was a very sort of clever tactic not to let him wear himself out at the altitude of in Bolivia and, and come on and, and make the difference. So I think he's obviously a, a big, a big uh, reason why Palmeiras shouldn't take this as given, but you know, there's lots of good players in that squad. And also, we saw um, Julio Enciso come on, just sixteen year old, uh, just sixteen years old, um, and score pretty much straight away. There was a bit of a deflection on it, but um, third youngest scorer in Libertadores history. So, even though uh, Os- Oscar Cardozo's twenty one years older than him, they've they've got um, you know quite a nice range of uh, options, and and Martinez as well is always. A lot of energy and, and always bothering defenses and you know they've they've got some good players there so I think they will be good but as you said five uh, one on aggregate massively flatters flatters them Wilsonman really were the masters of their own downfall um, on that second goal in the first leg the Wilsonman defender just passed like his back pass was absolutely awful um, 
and Cardozo did well to score it. And also, you know, we, we don't like to uh, criticise Eddie Zenteno, but he massively misjudged that header as well for that for that crucial third goal for um, Libertad in the in the first leg. He, he almost made up for it with quite a, a heroic block um, before Cardozo scored, but um, couldn't do couldn't do it all. So I think. Um, yeah, Wilsterman should be very disappointed that they didn't make more of this. Um, even even if Martin Silva did have a pretty inspired first half uh, for Libertad, um, but uh, I think we can we can still say that Palmeiras are probably going to be big favourites for that um, for that tie. I won't be having King Eddie disrespect on Agreed. this podcast. I'm going to be moving <laughs> swiftly <up>. on. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you want a wild story from the weird world of Bolivian football? Go for it. Yeah, you, you absolutely do. Um, Wilsterman were not exactly given any favors in their scheduling leading up to this match as well. Uh, as many of our listeners may know, the Bolivian Domestic League was the last league to return to action in South America. They're playing catch-up, uh, trying to get games in because essentially Conmobile said, hey... Um, if you don't have teams to make the Libertadores, you don't get to play in the Libertadores. And that can't happen. Uh, so the Bolivian League finally got restarted on the 24th of November. And or I believe the 24th of November, I believe, was the date. That was when they approved it to start the next Friday. Wilsterman played their first leg tie against Libertad on Wednesday, the 25th. They played their first match back in Bolivia on the 28th, a 3-2 loss to Royal Pari. They played their second match back in Bolivia on the 30th, a 2-1 win over Nacional Potosi. And then they played the second leg of their Libertadores match two days later. So in a span of seven days, Jorge Wilsterman played four matches, two domestically, two internationally. And I believe the sound you hear is Jurgen Klopp complaining on behalf of Jorge Wilsterman for their loaded fixtures. But it's just another edition of the wide, wondrous world of Bolivian football. Yeah, indeed. Um, let's move on to have a look at the last couple of games we need to round up from um, from this Libertadores last 16. Um, yeah, so Gremio ran out comfortable winners over Guarani, um, 2-0 in, in, in both the legs. I was expecting Guarani to give them a bit of a tougher time than this, but but what happened? Just Gremio showed up for both legs and their superiority told. Yeah, I think so. Um, the most interesting thing that happened over these two legs was Gremio or Guarani showed up for the second leg wearing a like teal change kit that was way too close to Gremio's blue and black home kit. And Guarani are yellow and black. Like I don't know why they decided that they were going to change kits, and I don't know how it got so far that Guarani walked onto the pitch wearing this teal change kit while Gremio was from for worldwide marketing yeah. exposure. Yeah. Often. They've got to get those Guarani kits out there to a worldwide market. Yeah. For a worldwide so this ma- the second leg was, was about 10 minutes delayed as Guarani trotted back to the dressing room to change into their sensible, regular yellow kit. Also, the referee, Wilma Rodan, then had to change his kit from yellow to maroon. So that was pretty fun watching the referees like sprint back to the dressing room. You know they were like, oh, we got to change first. But yeah, Gremio were the better side. Um, two goals in, in the second leg, Jean-Pierre and, and Pepe. Two good younger players for Gremio. Um, uh, they showed their quality. And then in, 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 the second, in the first leg, I should say. And then in the second leg, 
Um, if there was any doubt at all, Gremio scored three minutes in, and then they they tacked one on very late, and and that pretty much took all the air out of out of that second leg tie. Um, Renato Gaúcho and Gremio are a great cup side. He's never really been able to put it together at the league for them, um, but he's you know the second most experienced manager at a big club in South America, behind only only Gachardo and River. Um, and Gremio are happy enough because he, he brings them performances in the cup. Um, they're in the the Copa do Brasil semifinals. They're in the Libertadores quarterfinals, and they look to have the squad and the style of play that that can take them even further. So. Um, they've become mainstays at this stage of the Libertadores under Renato Gaúcho, and they're there once again with with a pretty eclectic mix of players. I think Tom. Yeah, like you said, I think that's four quarterfinals in four years, and and they are again up there with River. Maybe not as successful, but they're they're doing well to be there right at the business end, pretty much every season. And I think this um, this these two ties sort of showed the strength and depth they have as well because um you know the first game was was a really impressive performance away at Guarani who who've been maybe a fairy tales maybe a bit of an exaggeration but they they've got through all the qualification rounds and they've had a really good campaign and you know didn't didn't embarrass themselves at all here but yeah with with players young players like Pepe and, and Jean-Pierre I, th- I think Pepe in particular has has really impressed me I th- I think he was maybe in Everton's shadow somewhat before, but he's he's looking like a real, um, really really good prospect who who's probably going to be the next one to to earn them a bit of money there. Um, also, got got to give a lot of credit to Vanderlei as well. He um, he's made a really big save just before the first goal, and then a minute later they went up the other end and scored. And he had a pretty good game in the in the second leg as well. But um, yeah, that that second leg, it was. It was kind of there. A lot of guys in that team who who aren't necessarily usual starters for them. It was kind of a, a maybe not. Yeah, it was rotated. Certainly, yeah, yeah, it was pretty heavily rotated. And and Fedeira, who's twenty two year old wide forward, who's who's bounced around on loan without really doing anything of note, um, scoring scoring that really crucial goal that I think just put any worries immediately to bed and, and turned it into a into a routine victory. Um and then obviously um Rodriguez um as well at the end there, you know, making it a nice um, even even two two goals in each, each each game. And again, someone who's not usually um a mainstay for for uh, for Gremio at all. So yeah, I, I like this Gremio side. Um and I think they're gonna be at tough for anyone and they've got enough um, variation and, and depth there um, to, to to really go far and yeah I'd, I'd have them pegged as a as a semi finalist as well at the very least. Okay, and um, it's, it'll be a all Brazilian quarter final uh, for Grêmio as they face Santos, um, who just about beat Liga de Quito in the end. That they had won the first leg away two one, so we're expecting. This to be quite a comfortable second leg for them, but Liga Tequito scored on 66 minutes of the of the second leg to make it 2-2. Santos threw on away goals in the end. Liga Tequito perhaps could have done a bit more attacking in that in that last 20-25 minutes or so to to try and get them through. Um, but yeah, this was unconvincing in the end from Santos. I think it's fair to say, Austin. 
It was difficult there, Adam, for you to, to hide the disgust in your voice of bringing the news of an all-Brazilian tie in the Libertadores, wasn't it? <laughs> it, was, it was pretty clear to me. I, I could hear it, at least. Like, isn't it boring, isn't it? Like, where, yeah, how did these teams even qualify? Did they like finish 7th and 8th um, or something in the Brazilian I think Grêmio might have won the cup. I don't know. Mm, right. so, I don't know. But yeah, no, look, <laughs> you're not going to get a huge protest. You know what no, I, mean. I understand. I understand. Um, yeah, this I I I this feels like the second straight year, Tom, where Liga de Quito. It feels like they should have done better at home in a knockout round tie last year. They threw it all away against against Boca Juniors, um, and this year, look, a better performance at home, and, and you can go to Santos and try and get something, and that's enough to go through. They went to Santos and they got something. Uh, but they didn't do enough in the home part of this tie, and that is what ended up costing them. I'm not super convinced about Santos either, although I am convinced about uh, Kukinha, who is, I believe, Kuka's son. I'm convinced about his mustache, their manager. Um, Kuka's been <laughs> battling COVID, but I am convinced about his mustache. But other than Jefferson Sotelo and maybe Mourinho, there's not a ton in this Santos side. Yeah, I think... They're definitely the weakest of the Brazilian team still going through. Um, they were made to look a lot better than they actually are, I think, because I was, like like you said, so disappointing from the Ecuadorians. I, I thought they'd done really well to get out of a tough group. Um, they're going well in the league too, but I, I think they've had a few injuries and a bit of dip of form and the mood in the camp hasn't been quite as good as it was um, as during the, the group stage. And and yeah, that, that first first leg really shot themselves in the foot um you know Soteldo with with the nice opener I, I was very much enjoying his his Robbie Fowler-esque nasal strips as well I was I was a big fan of that um but yeah uh, coming away from that that first game giving up two goals and then even though they got the win in in Brazil you f- you already felt that the damage had been done in the first leg and and Santos were creating more chances and, and felt relatively comfortable until until that kind of late, uh, well, that second half goal. And then obviously a nice massive brawl, which we always like to see um, in the Libertadores. I think it was, went to about 22 minutes of yeah, that was before. That was an <laughs> that interesting out. one, Tom, because I believe we got to like 111 minutes or something. And the referee, Nestor Pitana, who, of course, is, is a South American refereeing legend, you know, him and his three pieces of hair that he combs over is his bald spot. You know, when you see Nestor, you, you know you're in a big Libertadores match. Uh, he's got Obviously, he has nothing on the refereeing talents of, of perennial Libertadores final referee Roberto Tobar, but he's certainly an iconic South American official. About... It was honestly about 10 to 15 minutes to sort everything out with VAR. He finally dishes out, you know, all of the red cards, puts the ball back into play. It's kicked in full time. And it's just like, did we really need to go through all of this and then just have the whistle go right after? Couldn't we have like done this retroactively or something? Um, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I I also liked in that brawl, I I felt really worried like a protective parent about Soteldo. Yeah. He was just like trying to get involved, but it's like, mate, you're not getting in there. And and one other thing that my last point on Santos is I've got a lot of time for the goalkeeper, John. I mean, we've seen lots of Brazilian names with these kind of, you know, slightly, 
you know, the, the English and the sort of granddad sounding names. But but John, without being too spectacular, just feels very Sunday League. Like, oh, who's who's in goal today? Oh, John. Um, so I was I was very very much enjoying him in goal. Um, yeah, so that's that's all done for the Libertadores. Um, last sixteen, uh, the quarterfinals will take place um, over the next two weeks. Well, three weeks if you include the international Boca tie as well. Yeah, but in the Sudamericana this week, there was uh, plenty of interesting ties to have a look at. It's at the same stage there as well. The the last sixteen, it was a good week for Argentinian sides. I think it's fair to say, Tom. No. Yeah, a really good week. Uh, we saw lots of goals as as Velez smashed Deportivo Cali five one um, to to go through seven one on on aggregate there. Um, Lucas Janssen was was particularly good in that game and um, sets up a nice tie with uh, Universidad Católica um, and Lanús as well. They're they're young kids, absolutely on fire. Um, as they, again they they put uh was it 6-2 in the end <laughs> against bolivar um to to win 7-4 on aggregate so yeah good for them independiente going strong and and defensi justicia um getting through as well just union who who didn't make it indeed indeed um it was a it was a fairly good week for for chilean sides um although the result of the week was probably coquimbo beating um Cuencao of, uh, of Peru 2-0 away to go through 2-0 on aggregate. Um, that featured um, a lovely backhill goal in the first minute and then a superb individual effort um, with 10 minutes to go from, from Palacios, who had just come off the bench um, to, to silver win. Um, Kukimbo certainly deserved it over two, two legs, the superior side in, in that one. Last night, well, we're recording on Friday, so on Thursday night, Katolika had a 2-1 lead going into the home leg against River Plate of Uruguay. River Plate have um, Arezzo up front, one of the most highly rated players in, in South America at the moment. Just, um, I think he's just turned 18, hasn't he, Tom? Now? Yeah, yeah um, still, still 18. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he 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 was he was maybe a bit quieter than he had been in previous rounds. I was I I was surprised at how well River Plate played in in this second leg, and um, and to be honest, if I had scored a second goal to knock Catolica out here on aggregate, Catolica went through um, on away goals. It finished two two. Um, I, I wouldn't have had any complaints about bad luck on uh, on the on the on the Chilean side of things, um, but yeah, R- River really blew their chance because once they'd scored and made it one nil, Sebastian Pires, their their captain, got a silly red card, really um, just a couple of minutes after, and it was always going to be difficult then. But yeah, they they did threaten and they had quite a few shots, and Catolica were really really poor going forward. Um, last last night, um, yeah. So, Catolica a little bit fortunate to go through, whilst the other Chilean side, uh, the third Chilean side, I, I want to mention at this stage was Union de Calera. Um, they were two one down to Junior, the Colombian side with a uh, with a forward line packed with uh, Colombian internationals. Junior took the lead um, a minute into this game. 
through Mikko Borga. It was like 20 seconds, wasn't it, Adam? Yeah, yeah. Twenty, yeah, about twenty-five, yeah, twenty, twenty-five seconds. Fantastic strike, to be fair. But that was basically pretty much the only thing Junior did in, in this game. The rest of the ninety minutes was pretty much all Union de Calera. Yeah, Cordero, Chiqui Cordero had a fantastic game. He scored just before half time to make it one-one. And then uh, Juan Lera, who is like one of the best midfielders. In, in Chile, um, another superb performance from him, capped off by by scoring the goal to make it 2-1. Union Calera unfortunately, couldn't quite find what would have been a deserved winner. And in the end, they were pretty poor on penalties as uh, as they lost 4-2. It was a devastating loss for Le Calera, really, because I, I do feel that if they'd got through in this tie... With Coquimbo up in the quarterfinals, another Chilean side who they are much better than. And then in a semi, a very winnable semi-final, you're looking at a Le Calera side who very much could have been very competitive in this competition to have gone all the way to, to the final and even perhaps win it, given just how tough their defence is to, is to break down usually. so and, and that was the other thing I wanted to mention. You know, They were missing their best defender for both of these legs. And I think if he had played, especially in that first leg, I certainly don't think that second goal that Junior scored in the first leg would have been scored. So, yeah, a few ifs and buts. But, um, yeah, Union Calera really um, disappointed to see him go out because they were the better side in in this tie. Um, but the quarterfinals are shaping up like this. Vélez Sartsfield take on Universidad Católica, uh, Bahia, uh, the only Brazilian side left in the competition that they they take on Defensa e Justicia. Uh, junior take on Coquimbo, as I just mentioned, and Lanús, who I think are probably the side uh, I'd be most wary of left in this competition, take on Independiente, who have a reputation of being rather good in cup competitions, right, Tom? Yes, yes, they do. <laughs> Um, okay, well, uh, let me just, uh, let, I'll, I'll come straight back to you, Tom, to see where people can find you um, on, on Twitter and if there's anything you want to plug. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at TomRobber89. Um, lots of stuff going on there, but I think the, the main one would probably be to, to have a listen of our Maradona podcasts uh, that, that we've done I thought they were really enjoyable to record so if anyone's still feeling that they need their hit of Maradona nostalgia then 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 get on there and give them a listen and Austin yeah you can find me personally at Austin underscore James 906 uh, I would plug the uh, the spotting scouting the spotting scout light podcast that we just did wow English <laughs> Um, I would plug the Scouting Spotlight podcast that Tom and I uh, recently released uh, on Gabriel Menino, a Palmeiras player who who got a call into the Brazilian squad. There's another Scouting Spotlight on the way as well, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Uh, Libertadores and Sudamericana action continues thick and fast, uh, as you said, Adam. Back into action next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then the week after, uh, and then even the week after with the second leg of the, the quarterfinal match between Rossing and either Boca or Internacional. For all of the latest on those competitions, I would encourage the listeners to follow the official accounts of both of those competitions at the Libertadores and at the Sudamericana. Um, I've got a piece coming out on Monday um, on Marcelo Gajardo and, and facing the Nacional side 
that he started his managerial career at. Uh, we also had an interview with um, the United States international, Johnny Cardoso, who's playing at Internacional right now on the site, um, the Libertadores site. So I would encourage the listeners to, to go give those a look as well. Yeah, and just from me, you can find me at Adam Brandon 84 on Twitter. Nothing really much to plug at the moment, although we might be putting out, um, as well as the podcast, which is already out there on Diego Maradona, we're also kind of putting out a, a small article on him with a few links to some of the some of our favourite articles, pods, videos, and and tweets that have emerged um, in tribute to to the great man and footballer. So yeah, please uh, please check that, check that out when when we do put it out on World Football Index. Okay, well it's just left for me to say a huge thanks to Tom and Austin for joining me, and also to you, the listener, and it's goodbye.